0: Jesus. John chapter 5 says in verse 1 after these things there was a feast of the Jews, which one we don't know and Jesus went up to Jerusalem now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porticos and in these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind lame and withered look at verse 5, a man was there who had been ill for 38 years, verse 8 Jesus said to him Get up, pick up your pallet and walk. And immediately the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. Now it was the Sabbath on that day. According to the four gospels, well, you know what, before I ask the question, let's pray. Father, we ask your blessing on this time. Lord, that the teaching be yours and not mine, that your spirit would speak to us, that what is heard and what is retained, Lord, And what blesses and enriches and provides nutrition and cultivates in us would be your word, your voice, your truth. Father, I often think this, but I pray it aloud tonight. If I get something wrong, would you just cause everybody to forget it so that we only hear what is right and true and good and what comes of your word and by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. According to the four gospels, how many times, this is your quiz question for tonight, how many times did Jesus heal on the Sabbath? Reading through the four gospels, in totality, how many times did Jesus heal on the Sabbath? Any guesses? I'm hearing seven. Anyone want to go for eight, nine, 12? Six times. Six times. Six is the number of man in the Bible. And Jesus said in Mark chapter 2, verse 27, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. So I find it interesting. I don't believe in the irony or, or you know, uh, of scripture. I believe that it is intentional that what is presented doesn't mean that Jesus didn't heal more than that on the Sabbath. But the gospel writers together, all led by the Spirit, tell us of only six, and the Sabbath was made. For man, Charles Spurgeon says, God rested on the Sabbath and hallowed it. So, as God, it was rest to Jesus to heal. And thus he hallowed the day. But as Jesus made his way that day through that multitude, verse three, of those who were sick and blind and lame and withered, why did he stop at just one? Why not heal them all? Or at least those who wished or desired to be healed, they wouldn't be there if they didn't want to be healed. Why does Jesus only heal the one? You can make the argument, well, we're only told about the one. Okay, fair enough. But I I think that we would have a sense that there was a greater number of people being healed at that time if there really were. We just know about the one guy, everyone else lying around the upper pools of Bethesda Tyene, the twin pools that day, All who were laying there just inside Jerusalem's sheep gate were in need of a shepherd. Why didn't Jesus heal them all? Why only one? And the answer's in the passage before us, verse 18. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he not only was breaking Shabbat, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And that is the issue. Never forget that is the focal point, not only of John's gospel, but of the first coming of Jesus Christ was the presentation of the divine nature of God. That's why he came. That's why he did what he did. It wasn't to overlook or miss all the other sick people. It wasn't to call out one guy. It was because this sign was about the divine nature of Jesus. This is that we might know who God is, get something of the Lord. 1 John chapter 2, verse 2 tells, tells us, He himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. So in the instance, he he heals one man, but his coming was for the whole world. Truly for the healing of the whole world. I'll put it this way. There is no Sabbath without sacrifice. There is no rest without redemption. That healing isn't healing if you get sick again. Right? Right? I mean, you could say, yeah, well, temporary healing, well, that's great. Do you realize that every miracle performed by Jesus, even the raising of the dead, those people died again, they got sick again, these things returned again because they were in sinful human flesh. And we so badly want to see healings and experience raisings from the dead, but understand, resurrection itself is just a momentary thrill if you die again. Jesus didn't come for parlor tricks. Jesus came to present the redemptive love of the Father, to show the world who God is, which is why the particular signs are in John's gospel. It's why the healings are throughout the gospels. It's why the miracles of Jesus are in the Bible at all. It's to show us who God is, not to tickle our ears with healings. The fact that Jesus healed it all, honestly, it's grace in the overflow. When when for three days, and I believe it's Matthew 13, for three straight days Jesus was just sitting on a hillside healing, it's because he couldn't help himself. That's compassion. But it wasn't the point. That's not why he came. And I don't say that to denigrate any healing or any experiences that we have had with the Lord. I'm just saying the point of his first coming was not to stick band-aids on eternal wounds. It was so that we could see and know and receive the living, saving testimony of God. And in our world today, whether it's COVID or the climate crisis, I love how that's now what they're, it's not just climate change, it's the climate crisis. We got to inject some urgency or nothing's going to get done covid climate crisis any other existential concerns we can get so hung up on immediate remedies and resolutions that we miss this very simple point jesus came as god with us to bring us to god y'all are real quiet right now he came as god with us to bring us to god thus glorifying god So I have no problem with us only seeing one healing here because every single person around that pool who would come to faith in Jesus, if in fact they did, I don't know, but everyone who received the redemptive work of the cross was healed eternally. And that's the point. And that is our hope. But what's the proof in all this? Where are the witnesses to who Jesus really is to all of his claims? And and I'm going to let him explain that because it's all red letters for the rest of the chapter. So Jesus is going to do the talking, picking up in verse 19. Therefore, Jesus answered and was saying to them, therefore, so go back and see what it was there for. For this reason, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. I don't know about you, but if someone is seeking to kill me, I'm not going to stick around and talk to them and give answer and try to explain what's really going on. But see, Jesus is Jesus. Therefore, Jesus answered and was saying to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, these things the son also does in like manner. For the father loves the son and shows him all things that he himself is doing, and the father will show him greater works than these, so that you will marvel. One commentator looks at these two verses and says, there's an an embedded apprentice parable here. That when Jesus says he can only do what he sees the father doing, that he's hearkening back to the masonry shop or the carpentry shop with his father, Joseph, in Nazareth. And he's remembering how his father would would plane some wood and Jesus would watch. And then he would likewise plane the wood. He only sees what the father's doing. The father's showing him how to do these things. And he's living that way. I don't know if that's intentional. Because what Jesus is really saying in verses 19 and 20 is he's expressing the incarnation. The son can do nothing of himself. He only does what he sees the father doing. It's a father-son relationship that is so intimate. In fact, when it says that the son does these things in like manner, verse 19, in like manner is a single word in the Greek. It's homois, homois, which means likewise or it means same, in the same manner. It's where we get our word homogeneous. It means equal. The Son only does that which is equal to what the Father is doing. What Jesus is saying here, and they're already upset with him, they're already thinking murderous thoughts, but what he's doing here is doubling down on this claim, this inseparable, indivisible relationship that he has with the Father, that later he would say, I and the Father are one. But as this gospel began, verse one of chapter one, we were told in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God in John 1:14, and the word became flesh. So we already are tipped off to what now he is saying to the Jewish leadership. The, the logos, that logos truth, remember that it's throughout chapter one. I told you at the time, you won't see the word logos again in that context again. At all in the gospel of John. But you will sense it. You will hear it. And this again. Jesus now is saying. What the father does. The son does. Because the son and the father are one. The word became flesh. And the word was with God. And the word was God. So he's now beginning to express. This eternal awesome truth. The relationship of father and son. Is so close. So intimate. Verse 20. Again the father loves the son and shows him all things that he himself is doing and will show him greater works than these so that you will marvel. That's so cool. It's such a close, intimate relationship that Jesus does a miracle and he sees the Father doing it. Do you understand what I'm saying? That when someone is raised from the dead by the hand of Jesus, Jesus would say, oh yeah, the Father did that. Well, no, Jesus, you did that, exactly. Because Jesus the Son and God the Father work in such tandem. Do you ever think about that? When you're reading through the Gospels, the 39 or so miracles in the Gospels, that every time Jesus does a miracle, God's hand is in it. That it's not Jesus working separate from the Father, but in absolute indivisible unity with the Father. Father and Son are doing these signs, are doing these miracles. God the Father. So, so it really cracks me up when people, they say, okay, well, there's the Old Testament God, and then there's Jesus. Hey, the Old Testament God, Yahweh, Jehovah, God the Father is working with Jesus, healing with Jesus, compassion with Jesus, in tandem with Jesus. It's not to say that they're. It's not to say that they are the same, and yet they are the same. I mean, they're they're unique in the Trinity—Father, Son, Spirit—and yet they're homogeneousness is very nearly inseparable. And Jesus now lays claim to three areas to back this up where God alone has ever had sovereignty, where God has the authority and the right. Jesus now owns this stuff himself. Look at verse 21. For just as the father raises the dead, and gives them life, even so the son also gives life to whom he wishes. That's the privilege of God over life. The privilege of God. If you wanna take notes, I'm gonna give you a few little lists as we go through. And that's, this is part of, a, of a, a little four-part list. The privilege of God over life. This is not only the divine power to raise the dead, it is the right to raise the dead. It's the privilege That heretofore had only belonged to God, but now belongs to Jesus, the right. Others raised the dead. Some of the prophets were used of God to raise the head dead, but it wasn't their right. It's because God said, do it. But now Jesus comes along and not only has the power, he has the privilege to make that call. And so he does what the synagogue leader's daughter, Jairus. Luke chapter eight, verses 49 through 56 is that story. Jairus' daughter was This is interesting to me, dead just a few minutes. Some could say maybe she swooned, maybe she wasn't really dead. She was dead, but not long when Jesus came in and he healed her, raised her to life. That was Jesus' call. And the widow's son, Luke chapter 7, actually happened before that. Luke chapter 7, verses 11 through 15 The widow's son, who's now being led out of the city of Nain in a funeral procession, and Jesus walks right up to the coffin and puts his hand on it, unclean. It was his right. It was his privilege to choose to raise that boy and give him back to his mother that day. Now, Jairus' daughter had been dead just a few minutes. The widow's son had been dead a day. See, in Jewish tradition, if you die, you bury him as fast as possible, usually the same day if possible, or at least by the next day. So we have the daughter dead a few minutes, the son dead for at least a day, and then there's Lazarus. John chapter 11, dead four days. Just in case anybody was thinking the other two were flukes, or, 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 you know, maybe something else, four days in the grave, wrapped up, stinking dead, Lazarus. Jesus raised all three by his own divine privilege. Verse 22, for not even the father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the son. So the privilege of God over life, and now Jesus claims the prerogative of God over judgment. That's his call too. The prerogative of God over judgment. Abraham called God the judge of all the earth, Genesis 18, 25. He's the judge of all the earth. Psalm 96, 13 says he is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. Isaiah 5, 16, the Lord of hosts will be exalted in judgment and the holy God will show himself holy in righteousness, God's final judgment. It belongs to the sovereign father. And that judgment resulting in resurrection or condemnation is firmly embedded in Jewish faith. So for Jesus now to come out and say, the father has given the son the right to judge. No, 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 no. Only God has the right to raise the dead and only God has the right to judgment. And Jesus says, "Uh uh-huh. You picking up what I'm putting down? You got my can of Pringles? Jesus has the right to life and death. Jesus has the right to judgment. He asserts this same divine authority. And by the way, Jesus could not possibly have been more provocative unless he were to declare the right to be worshipped. Verse 23 so that all will honor the son even as they honor the father. He who does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. So we have the privilege of God over life, the prerogative of God over judgment, and the praise of God in worship. Jesus says, that's mine. You honor me as you honor the father. Right now he's speaking second person. You honor the son as you honor the father. But he's speaking of the praise of God in worship. Jesus was one sharp rabbi. He knew how to speak with just enough ambiguity here, talking father and son. So he's, he's taking, he's a step back from it, even though he knows, we know who the son is. But as he's talking early on in his ministry, remember Jesus always knows his hour. And he's working toward that hour and he doesn't wanna spring that hour too quickly. So he's speaking in this way that it keeps the Jewish leaders at bay even though they knew what he was saying. You could just see the frowns and the arms crossed and the brows furrowed as these guys were listening to Jesus going, I bet he thinks he's this son. But he didn't say it yet. He's just walking them along And he also knows there are others listening in. There are the people all around, which is another reason why the angry Jewish leadership couldn't do anything because the Jewish people were listening to Jesus, fascinated by him, hanging on every word. But I'll tell you what, as Jesus owned the honor that is supposed to be for God only, I think they had to know in their hearts what he was claiming. Isaiah 42, verse eight, I am the Lord, that is my name, I will not give my glory to another. He spoke through Isaiah, also through Isaiah, chapter 48, verse 11. For my own sake, for my own sake, I will act. For how can my name be profaned? And my glory I will not give to another. And Jesus has the audacity to appropriate the honor and glory due only to the Father with total equality. Of course, In the Hebrew scriptures before Isaiah, there was also David recording these words, Psalm 211, worship the Lord, Yahweh, with reverence and rejoice with trembling, do homage to the Son. That he not become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. So Jesus here takes the privilege of God over life. He takes the prerogative of God over judgment, the praise of God in worship. And he is our refuge. And he takes all of this and combines it into one precious promise, verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death and into life. One of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. You've passed out of death and into life. It's another amen, amen, truly, truly that Jesus says it's an absolute certainty. If you hear my word, you pass out of death and into life. Do you hear his word? Do you hear Jesus? Remember that to a Jew, to a Hebrew, To hear is to receive and act on it. To receive with obedience. It is not listening to a Bible study. It's walking out of the Bible study and acting on what the Lord has told you. Receiving with obedience. Believing in God who sent Jesus. And, And if you're there, you've received with obedience, guess what? You've just been received into eternity. The judgment for sin The judgment of death is now passed over. You could say it's past tense. The Greek phrase, passed out of, he has passed out of death and into life. Passed out of is a cool word. It's metabino, which in the Greek translates two ways. Passed out of, it's to be removed. So you've been removed from death and into life. You've been moved from one position or place to another. Metabino, to be removed. As in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 5, even when we were dead in our transgressions, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That is quite a move. From this old dead body to an assurance that I am already seated with the Lord. So metabino, I've, I've now passed out of this and into that. That is the glorious hope. That's my that's my future. That's the promise of this resurrection, to pass out of death, to be removed. But it also means this. Metabino can translate to become. To become. So it's not just a moving day. It's a becoming day from one state of being to another state of being. That's part of the process too. 1 Corinthians 15, 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised. How? Same as we are, rotting and stinking and sinful. The dead will be raised. Anyone know the word? Incorruptible, imperishable. I'll take them both. We will be raised imperishable. We will be changed. So it's, we've passed out of death and into life. We haven't just moved to a new location. We have physically, spiritually, all the way through been altered, glorified to be with Jesus. Removed from death below to life above, transformed into imperishable bodies. And speaking of life, he now gives two resurrection. Promises, Verse 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. The Father has life, Jesus has life. Where does life come from? From the the exertion of the Father. He has life. You could say even as God is love, And as the Bible says, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. You can say, God is life. We exist and have life because God is life. And that's where it comes from. And it says, even as the father has life in himself, Jesus says, even though, even so he gave to the son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Jesus says something three times. Here, What we saw in verse 25, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is. An hour is coming and now is. Three times. We already heard the first time back in chapter 4, verse 23, where Jesus says to the Samaritan woman, an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And then ahead in John 16, verse 32, Jesus will say, behold, an hour is coming and has already come, or and now is, same Greek language, for you to be scattered each to his own. That moment's here, Jesus says, on the night of his betrayal. And then here in John 5, 25, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and live. The dead will hear his voice and they will live what does he mean an hour is coming and now is well there's Jairus's daughter so right there in that very near season she's going to be living again the dead will hear his voice she's going to rise right back up the widow's son Lazarus in the tomb but but listen to me on this when Jesus says this this is huge there is a shift in the ages taking place from before Christ to the year of our Lord in a way that our calendars don't quite comprehend. There is a shift in the ages. Jesus is now ushering in, get this, the age that will see the first resurrection. That's the age that we're in. I loved it, we were talking earlier this morning and, and Brandy made the comment about dispensations. She says, too many people in the church don't understand dispensations. And I said, you're absolutely right. Do you know what a dispensation is? It's a, it's a timeframe in which God works with a certain group of people, specifically. So Adam and Eve in the garden would be a dispensation. The the time of Moses, well, the patriarchs prior to Moses would be a dispensation. The Mosaic Law, a dispensation. The Church Age is a dispensation. Doesn't mean you have to be a dispensationalist, although, kind of. <laughs> you don't have to claim that. Don't have to get it on a T-shirt. But this is so significant. We are now in a dispensation that is unique to the history of the world. We call it the Church Age. Call it the Age of Grace. This is the time from the crucifixion resurrection of Jesus and the offer of salvation is flowing, has been for 2,000 years, but this dispensation will come to an end. What concludes this dispensation? First resurrection is at the very end of it. This is the age of the first resurrection. An hour is coming and now is the age of the first resurrection. Now, there are actually two resurrections. If you've studied through Revelation with us, you already know this. There's a first resurrection and there is a second resurrection, but I gotta go over this again. So just indulge me for a minute. The first resurrection is what you want to be a part of. You do not want to be in the second resurrection. The first resurrection is wonderful. It is the resurrection. As Jesus says, the dead will hear. And by the way, dead there is very specific. The word is necros. The corpses will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear who will live. That's the first resurrection. It, It includes all who die in faith, all who die in Christ and who are alive when he calls. And what's so amazing to me about this is Jesus is already here, still somewhat early on in his ministry, he is already talking about the imminency of the first resurrection. Jesus is seeding something into early believers that will carry them through life. And that is the possibility that he might come right away. I know it's been 2,000 years, but you know what? Every follower of Jesus for 2,000 years is called to live our lives as if this is it. Now, I really think it is. Kyle, I think we're like that close to done. I'm watching the U.S. presidency to see what's gonna happen next. I know we're so, I'm kidding, but we're so close and I absolutely believe we're at the end of the end times, the last of the last days. We're right here on the very cusp of this thing, this first resurrection. But we're called to live that way regardless. Paul in the first century lived as though every day would be his last because he was gonna be caught up. He, fully, he writes in, early on in his letters like he fully expects to be raptured, caught up. That's the first resurrection and Jesus is already suggesting the imminency of it. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians 4. If you got the page dog eared, if it's all greasy from your fingers, you got everything underlined and written on so much you can barely read it, praise the Lord. If not, work on it. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and again, you may know this. Let me encourage your faith. Listen closely again, beginning in verse 13. We do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, 1 Thessalonians 4.13. We don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. Asleep, he's talking about the appearance of the dead body. Looks asleep. The Bible does not teach soul sleep, but uses sleep as a euphemism for death for if we believe that jesus died and rose again even so god will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in jesus which stopping right there means that they're with him for god to bring them with him so people dear to me who have gone on before their spirits are at home with jesus I'm not going to get all into that tonight, but there are other passages that absolutely support that. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord if, in fact, you have faith in Jesus when you die. So he's going to bring with him those who have died in in Christ Jesus, right? Verse 15, continuing on. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord, see, there's Paul's expectation, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Hold on a second. I thought he was bringing them with him. Now it says the dead in Christ will rise. Yes, because the word dead is necros, corpse. He's going to bring with him the spirits of those who have died. Their bodies may yet be in the grave. Their bodies may be cremated. God knows where the molecules are. Don't worry about that. But those bodies will instantaneously rise as he brings with him the spirits of those who have fallen asleep in Christ and instant, immediate glorification. And that happens before we even get to go up. But we go up in the twinkling of an eye, so it's all so fast. Not a problem for God. Understand that? Not a problem for God at all. But this is all what's taking place here. In this instant, the dead in Christ, the the corpses rise. It's not going to freak anybody out, out because, again, it's in the twinkling of an eye, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us. Then, verse 17, we who are alive and remain will be caught up, harpazo, raptured, together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Rick, why are you reading this again? Verse 18, therefore comfort one another with these words. I just got to remind you again, this is the first resurrection. This is the resurrection to life. This is what Jesus is talking about having authority over as he's dealing with these Jewish leaders. And why is he dealing with them when they're thinking murderous thoughts? Because he loves them. Because they matter to him. Because he's not given up on them, not yet. Because among them could be guys like Nicodemus other Jewish leaders, other Pharisees, maybe even some Sadducees are going, wow, this guy makes sense. Nobody can do the things this guy does. Look at the way he treats people. Look at the love in his eyes. They're reacting, they're responding, many badly, but some, some are gonna get saved. And Jesus is holding that out for them. Listen, the first resurrection, this is so important to get and understand. I asked her staff today, y'all believe in the pre-tribulation rapture of the church? And I'm hearing yeses and I'm glad to hear that. It's not about trying to be doctrinally right. It's about being biblical. And I tell you, I've been over this again and again and again and again. And I don't see anything that fits the scriptures more literally, chronologically, or perfectly than a pre-tribulation rapture of the church that we are caught up before God pours out his wrath on this Christ-rejecting world. It is, the the mountain of scriptural evidence for this is intense. And what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 14 is just, again, and the reason I'm going back over this is it still shocks me that there are people who want to kind of cop out on this thing. That there are Christians, and maybe it's you, and if it is, let's talk later, Please. There are Christians who say, wow, I think it's a mid-trib rapture. So we'll go through three and a half years of hell on earth, and then we'll be caught up. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 9, we are not destined for wrath, but for salvation. There are those who are about a a pre-wrath rapture, that sometime before the real wrath of God gets underway, well, the ironic thing to me is Revelation 6 tells us that the world understands that the first half of the tribulation is the wrath of the Lamb. And we were not destined for wrath. So that's not for us. Some people come along and they say, well, yeah, but Pastor Rick, I don't think we should get off scot free. Look at the last 2,000 years of the church and the kind of persecution that they've gone through. And why do we think that we just get to be raptured before we face that kind of persecution? I got a simple answer. By the way, that's the Cory Tin Boom statement. I love Cory Tin Boom. She's an amazing woman of intense faith, but she called the pre-tribulation rapture a heresy. She didn't believe it because her life experience was one of intense pain and hardship. And so there are those who will say, yeah, I don't know about the rapture. this whole rapture escapism idea. Well, Jesus said, pray that you may escape, but let's just set that aside for a minute. People who say this whole rapture idea It's escapism, and we should have to face some of the tribulations and pains and persecutions that the whole church has had to face for 2,000 years. Two answers to that. Number one, the whole church for 2,000 years has not faced that. Some have. You realize that in the last 100 years of the church, more Christians have been martyred for our faith than in the first 283 years, which was a horrific time of martyrdom. Worldwide. There are people dying for their faith in Jesus right now while we comfortably sit in our church building. Should we feel guilty that we're not being persecuted in the same way? In fact, this whole idea that I need to face more persecution sounds an awful lot like purgatory. Are we saying that we have to be pre-wrath Rapture or mid-trib rapture because yeah, we 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 need to have our dose of persecution as well. Why? Does that buy you more grace? Forgive me for going off here, or don't forgive me. Either way, I'm still gonna go off. <laughs> the first resurrection is what Peter called our living hope. It is our hope, it is our day-to-day. We could be out of here this evening. Rick might not even get to the end of his rant before we're caught up. It is our living hope, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. The pre-tribulation rapture of the church that we're gonna be caught up and called home before the wrath of God is poured out on this world is in the heart of all of those who love his appearing. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8. And... The pre-tribulation rapture of the church, speaking here of the first resurrection unto life, is the most purifying hope of saved people. And it is, to my mind, tragic when someone rejects that because you're rejecting a hope that will purify you. As John said in 1 John 3, verse 2, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be, We know when he appears, we will be like him. Metabino, we're going to be changed, translated, transformed. There's going to be a metamorphosis that's going to be awesome. We know when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And then John says, and everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. And I absolutely believe this. This has changed my life. I can tell you that. This has caused me to desire to live this way, to follow Jesus, to, to give my heart to Jesus. Not a perfect man, my family can tell you that, but to be intent on following after Jesus and bring in the gospel because I know at any moment I may go. And that, that to me, gang, that compels compassion. It, it's my wife's, what are you here for statement that I hate, but she's right. What are we here for? Whenever she says that, I know there's gonna be a big change in the Crawford house. What are we here for? The pre-tribulation rapture of the church, like nothing else, compels compassion. It motivates ministry. Hey, if you think, wow, this could be our final year, 2022, time to look busy. (laughs) I'm kidding. But I do think time to get busy. You've seen the old bumper sticker, Jesus is coming, look busy. No, but the motivation to ministry, for me, it comes right from the first, from the, the first resurrection. It stimulates self-sacrifice. Yeah, I can give that up, no big deal, because I could be out of here next week. And it arouses agape love for others, because I know this, I know this, as much as I can't wait to see Jesus the hope of seeing him reminds me there is a coming wrath on this earth. There is a second resurrection, which is to judgment. And I don't want that for anyone. For, for it to be said that pre-tribulation rapture folks just wanna escape and let the world burn does not express the heart of someone who loves his appearing. I love his appearing so much, I want everyone to see him when he appears. I want everyone to be called up. And it should break all of our hearts to know that some will be resurrected to judgment. That's the second resurrection. Look at verse 28. Do not marvel at this, Jesus says, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs, all who are in the tombs, that believers or non-believers, doesn't matter, all will hear his voice and will come forth. Verse 29, those who did the good, by the way, the word deeds isn't there, those who did the good to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil to a resurrection of judgment, judgment day. If we're saved by grace, then how can Jesus say those who did the good to life and those who did the evil to judgment? Let me be really clear. The good is believing in him whom he has sent. And we'll see that in the next chapter. The people will say, what must we do to work the works of God? What are the good deeds we're supposed to do? And Jesus says, I got it, I got it. You're gonna love this. Believe in me. That's the good. Every good thing that a follower of Jesus does after believing in him, every righteous deed has been given to us to do. We do it because we love him. We do it because of who he is. And we want everyone to know him. So the good that Jesus talks about that that results in life is faith. It's trusting in the Lord. And the fruit and the righteousness and all that, he's going to give that to you. And that's going to work out. That's going to come out in your life. But those who do the evil, there is a resurrection of judgment. Revelation chapter 20, verse 6. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. That's the rapture. That's the the catching up. Over these, the second death has no power. Okay, so there are two resurrections and two deaths. First resurrection is being caught up. It's the rapture. The first death is physical death that we may or may not experience. I may die before the rapture happens. I, every day, wake up and say, Lord, I don't want to be the first. I want to be the second. Because the dead in Christ rise first. I want to join them. I'm kidding, but I, I, you know, Lord, I'd love to go home today, but should he tarry and I live a little longer and then I die? Okay. That's the first death. No big deal. It has no hold on me. He broke those chains a long time ago. So praise the Lord. Even if I die the first death, I still have the rapture. I still have the resurrection. It's that second death that is horrific. Again, Revelation 20, verse 6, blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years, the millennial kingdom. Revelation 20, verse 12, I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. Books were opened. Another book is opened, which is of life, the book of life. The dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. We've talked about this before. There's the book of life. And if your name is in the book of life, it's because you believe in Jesus and you will be caught up when the rapture happens. If you're not in that book, there is judgment day. And judgment day is from the book's of deeds, Many books are opened. God keeps an exact accounting of everything everyone's ever done. So if you want to be judged based on that, you can be. God is completely fair. That's the second resurrection. It is not a resurrection to life. It is a resurrection to judgment. And when that judgment happens, brothers and sisters, those who are judged according to their deeds will be found wanting because nobody is good enough. It's only by the grace of Jesus that we're saved. That is heavy. That should motivate us. The reality of the first and the second resurrection. Now, now, by the way, yes, there are deeds, good deeds, which will be judged for rewards. And the Bible's clear on that too. It's going to happen, I think that's going to happen right around the time of the rapture. I think it's going to be, you know, as we go up, that that's going to happen right away. I can't tell you for certain on that. But I can tell you this, speaking to followers of Jesus, believers in Christ, those who are already saved, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. He's not talking about a judgment of salvation. He's talking about a judgment of what we've done with our salvation. How have we lived? There will be rewards. The judgment seat, the Bema seat of Christ is that, you know, like like, like the Olympics. They go up and they stand on the Bema. And they're given rewards based on how they ran. And that's what Paul is talking about in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10. You can look that up and think about it. If that's at all confusing to you, imagine being in the church at Corinth <laughs> and getting the letter. Wait a minute, we have to go to a... I, I thought my judgment happened at the cross, Paul. And now you're saying there's the judgment seat of Christ. And I can see Paul going, chill out, chill out. It's, it's okay. It's rewards. It's good. Some are not going to get the same rewards as others. That's not my idea. That's God's idea. Jesus comes along in Revelation 22, 12 and says, Behold, I'm coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. But there are no deeds good enough for a person to do to save themselves. Salvation is by grace alone, and the good we do is we simply Believe John 20, verse 31, John says, these things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So bring it back in, the privilege of life. Jesus says, that's mine. The prerogative of judgment. Oh yeah, that's mine too. The praise of our worship belongs to Jesus. The power of resurrection, whether it's the first or the second resurrection, it's all in the hands of Jesus. And in verse 30, he says, I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And now we've, we've just transferred, get this, into first person. Now he's talking about himself. Now he's just, he's laying it out on the line, And once again, Jesus speaking here, we see this intimate, integrated, shared will partnership with the Father. When Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own initiative. What does he mean? When I was a kid, Saturday morning, sitting there, eating my third or fourth bowl of Apple Jacks. Watching the Bugs Bunny Roadrunner Hour. Kick back. I'm on the couch. Ron's on the chair. We're both just, you know, a little bit of drools hanging down. as We're watching cartoons and not doing anything with our lives. And I remember from time to time my dad coming in and going, "I wish you would just show some initiative." <laughs> so I sat up, grabbed the box of Apple Jacks, and poured another bowl. <laughs> There's your initiative right there. Jesus says, "I can do nothing of my own initiative." Understand the word here. It's and it means of my own free will. What? I can do nothing of my own free will. Huh? He's talking about his relationship with the Father. He says this more than once, by the way, in John 8, 28. When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am, and I do nothing on my own initiative. Who would choose that? says, if God were your father, John 8, 42, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and have come from God, for I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. John 14, 10, Jesus says, do you not believe that I am in the father and the father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the father abiding in me does his works. So Jesus is is so unified with God that he can actually say, I'm not acting on my will, I'm acting on his. Well, Rick isn't. Jesus, God, yes. But he's acting on the will of the Father with complete unity. And it makes me wonder, am I self-willed or am I God-initiated? Am I more intent on my initiative Showing initiative, doing what I want to do, or am I initiated by God? there's There's an amazing thought here, and if you track this through, Jesus had the mind of the Father. We have the mind of Christ, first corinthians two sixteen. And on top of that, Jesus will say in John 16, 13, when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own initiative. But whatever he hears, he will speak and will disclose to you what is to come. What is he saying? Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all completely unified. No one's claiming their own initiative. The will is the same. And that will, my friends, is our will when we give our lives to Jesus. It's not my initiative. It's not me banging my pots and pans and claiming my rights. I gave that up when I became a follower of Jesus Christ. Now it's what does he want me to do? It's his rights. That's what I follow. That's what we're called to follow. And so we get connected into the divine initiative of the will of God invited to do and obey what he wants us to do. Whether we want to or not is utterly beside the point. And by the way, I don't think Jesus is saying, I have to do this. Dad's making me. He's just saying that's irrelevant. The one thing that was relevant to Jesus was the will of the Father. Verse 31, he said, if I alone testify about myself, my testimony is not true. Hmm. Wait a minute. Hang on. My testimony is not true. What's he saying there? It doesn't mean that Jesus isn't honest or truthful. What he's declaring is right on, and that's that his own personal testimony of who he is is not admissible in the court of public opinion. That is, plenty of people have come before Jesus and after, and in our age, plenty of people have come claiming to be some kind of Messiah. When you say what you want, give me the evidence. I want witnesses. And so Jesus begins to call them with the rest of this, this chapter. He, he uses the words testify and testimony from here to the end of the chapter 10 times. Witnesses, the word is martyreo. Where we get our word martyr, it means to witness, to affirm what is true. Jesus is now gonna put himself on trial. And we're gonna move through this quickly, but he's gonna put himself on trial and he's gonna call four witnesses to the stand to testify to him, to who he is. Marchareo witnesses. You know, Jesus is always on trial. You know that, right? He, he is right now. He is in our culture. He is in this world. He has been for 2000 years. He was during his entire ministry and in his life. Jesus is always on trial. But here Jesus provides witnesses to prove his claims. Again, four of them. By the way, Jesus knows Torah law very well. He wrote it. He knows it so well that he knows there have to be at least two witnesses to verify either charges or facts according to Torah law. So if you're standing in court and you want verification, you need at least two witnesses. Well, Jesus doubles that. He gives us four. Verse 32, there is another who testifies of me and I know that the testimony which he gives about me is true. You have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. Remember the Pharisees, they, they they sent their guys out to see John the Baptist, find out who he was, what he was about, what the deal was. Remember what John said? They said, Are you the Christ? Uh-uh. Are you Elijah? Nope. Are you the prophet? Uh-uh. I mean, he just no. He decreases. Jesus increases. You have sent to John and he has testified to the truth. But the testimony which I receive, Jesus says, is not from man. I say these things so that you may be saved. I love that. John's ministry, Jesus is saying, John's ministry was not for the sake of Jesus' self-realization. It wasn't so Jesus could figure out who he was. You know, the William Defoe, uh, what was that movie that he did where he played Jesus, The Last Temptation of Christ, years ago, if you've never seen it, it's a big fat waste of time. It's one of the lamest movies I've ever seen. I watched it at the time. William Defoe plays the position or the person of Jesus, and the self-realization when, and they made a big deal out of it when Jesus, played by Willem, uh, figures out he's the Messiah. It's It's almost hilarious if it wasn't sickening he, he's there and he's teaching a parable and he's saying uh, and these things speak of the Christ who is who is me I'm like that's so stupid Jesus says I don't need that I didn't need John the Baptist to come along and tell me who I was Jesus always, always knew who he was so why John come as a forerunner to Jesus to get the people ready to be saved He came for your benefit. He came as a witness for your benefit, Jesus is saying. And in verse 35, he says, he was, note this, the lamp that was burning and was shining. And you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. Witness number one, the lamp of the Baptist. John the Baptist, who Jesus calls a lamp here. Witness number one, Isaiah chapter 40, verse three, told us he would come, a voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness, make smooth the desert, in the desert, a highway for our God, and that is the only thing that John the Baptist was willing to claim about himself. Who are you then? I'm just the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way for the Lord. Such a humble man, and Jesus calls him a lamp, and I really like that, he's a lamp. He didn't call him the light, because John the Baptist was not the light. In fact, John chapter one, verse six, there came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light, so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. And now Jesus says, no, he wasn't the light. He was the lamp. What a great definition and John burned bright like all the Hebrew prophets before him he burned bright by the power of the holy spirit within him that innervated him and electrified him and allowed him to shine but you'd take a lamp and unplug it and it's just going to sit there and do nothing it's got to be plugged in right John was the lamp empowered by the spirit Luke chapter 1 verse 15 he will be filled with the holy spirit while yet in his mother's womb that's huge the other prophets before him, some of the kings, some of the priests, the spirit came upon them. This was in the womb. Little fetus John grooving, spirit-filled, man, having his own little you know revival there in the womb. The lamp, the lamp filled with the Holy Spirit, which is what allowed him to shine, and that's important because that's you and me. Same idea. See he was the lamp so that he could testify to the light. So he could shine the light which was not His, but Jesus. And in the same way we are lamps. Matthew chapter five verse fourteen. Jesus actually was kind enough to say you're the light of the world, but then he clarifies, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. We're lamps, and the light is Christ himself. So like the Baptist, we can burn bright by his Holy Spirit, And I think ever brighter and brighter and brighter, the darker the world gets. Remember that. And I told you when we started this series in John, one of the motivating factors for me was the darkness of the month of January. Truly. And the darkness of the world roundabout. And this is the gospel of the light of the world. And hey, if it's gonna get darker before Jesus calls us out, praise the Lord. We can shine brighter. Light me up. It's time to be Holy Spirit-filled people shining the light of Christ in this world. Verse 36. So there's the witness number one, the lamp of the Baptist. Witness number two, the works of Messiah. Watch this. But the testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John. For the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do, testify about me that the Father has sent me Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, Jewish leaders, open your eyes. What do you see? You want a witness? Sitting in the back row saying, can I get a witness? You want a witness? Look at what I am doing. The miracles, the healings, the signs of Jesus. What John the Apostle calls signs, listen to me, they were more declaration, than remediation. And this is where we started with the one lame man at the pool, only one who was healed. Because it wasn't about the healing, it was about the healer. It was about Jesus. His miracles were not just therapeutic, they were messianic, which was the point of the miracles. By themselves, miracles are powerful. But combined with these witnesses, they become unmistakable. Now you look at the miracles, not for the miracles themselves, but for who they declare, for what they declare about Jesus. They're not just temporary healings. They're eternally life-changing events because we meet Jesus in them. Isaiah twenty-nine, eighteen, prophesying of Messiah. On that day, the deaf will hear the words of a book. And out of the gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind will see. And the Jewish people were waiting for such a man, for such a Messiah to come along and do these things. Deaf hearing? Blind eyes seeing? Isaiah 35, verse 5. The eyes of the blind will be opened. The ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Those were two unmistakable messianic miracles. And Jesus says, there's another witness. John came as a witness. He told you who I was. Now look at what I've done. How many people see now? How many people hear? How many people are walking who were lame? Pay attention to this, guys. Look at what I'm doing. The eyes of the blind open, the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. By the way, when Isaiah says that, Isaiah 35, when does he say that happens? Because there's an interesting thought. The when to Isaiah 35 is completely fulfilled when Jesus comes again, because the context of those messianic verses are of his second coming. Isaiah 35 verse 10 says, the ransomed of the Lord will return and come with joyful shouting to Zion. That is the Jewish people returning to Israel with everlasting joy on their heads. They will find gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing will flee away. And that's the promise of the millennial kingdom. Guess what? The deaf are going to hear and the blind are going to see and the lame are going to walk when Jesus comes again. But it's already happened once when he came the first time. The witness of his works. Remember John the Baptist? Not yet, at least timeline-wise, but, but there comes a time when he's in prison and he sends his disciples to Jesus and, and he says, are you the right one or do we need to look for someone else? He's he's feeling a little discouraged. Rather than just say, I'm him, chill out, John. Jesus appeals to the witness of his works. He says, Matthew 11, 5, the blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And Jesus says, and blessed is he who does not take offense at me. It's all John needed to hear. Look at the witness, John. Well, the Jewish leaders were already offended. You know what the problem is with Offense it tends to blind the eye and deafen the ears so that you cannot see who Jesus is and you cannot hear what he is saying when we get offended by him. Verse 37, this is where the Jewish leaders were. But he goes on, the next witness, and the father who sent me, he has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form you do not have his word abiding in you and you do not believe him whom he sent witness number 3 the father who sent Jesus How is God the father a witness Well Jesus will say in John 14:11 Believe me that I am in the father and the father is in me otherwise believe because of the works themselves. So there's an integration again, we've already talked about tonight, the integration of the miraculous work of Jesus with the Father. So that as Jesus was doing these things, he says, as he did about Sabbath earlier in the chapter, do you remember what he said? The Father is working until now, and I myself am working. Because it was in tandem. It was being done together. So in that way, the Father was a, a witness But you know, the Father also gave spoken testimony of the Son. Matthew chapter 3, verse 16, After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. Behold, the heavens were opened. He saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of heaven said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. The witness of God. Third witness on Jesus' list. The witness of the Father. Or Matthew 17, verse 5. Many didn't hear it, but a few did. While he was still speaking, that is Peter, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud and said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And God says to Pete, listen to him. You pay attention to him. God speaks. Later in this gospel, we'll hear this one. It's a great story, John 12, 28. Jesus just says, out of nowhere, he just says, Father, glorify your name And a voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again as the Father continues to be a witness to the Son. So why does Jesus, calling on the witness of the Father, why does he say, you have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form? Well, you just said he was a witness. And we've actually declared a couple of times where God spoke audibly as a witness of Jesus. But why does he say To these Jewish leaders, you have not heard his voice. It's an indictment. They have not heard. What is hearing in the Jewish ear? It is to obey. You have not heard his voice. You haven't seen his form. You're not paying attention. If you say you hear him, but you don't accept his own son, if you say you hear him, but you don't obey him, guess what? You haven't heard him. You haven't heard him. So four witnesses, the lamp of the Baptist, the works of Messiah, the father who had sent him, and finally, finally, witness number four, the scriptures of life. Picking up in verse 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me And you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. You all know this is one of three of my favorite verses altogether. The one, two, three punch of the witness, the testimony of Jesus in the word of God. John 5, 39. And then Psalm 40, verse 7, repeated in Hebrews 10, verse 7. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me. Revelation 19.10, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. I put it this way, there are 66 books in the Bible, one revelation. The revelation of Jesus Christ is the point of the whole book, which is why Jesus declares right in here that the scriptures testify of me. And yet, even in the church, So many people come to the Bible because they're looking for pithy Proverbs or tidbits of wisdom or sadly proof texts for personal dogmas. People take the word of God, the Bible, and I once heard it put this way, you can take all of the writings of man through all history, all of the wisest, brightest, most intelligent, most erudite writings that are out there and put them all together in a library and the Bible doesn't even belong in that library. It is a library unto itself. Can't even put it on the same table with those books because it is so completely different. But you know what people do? They take the Bible down and they put it on the self-help aisle. This is not a self-help book. Oh, it'll help yourself. (laughs) There's all kinds of great truth and wisdom and and stuff that you can live by. And some people do with zero faith. They just like the Psalms. Or they read the Proverbs because they say, oh, there's some wisdom there. Yeah, I could, I, could, I could live that way. And when Christians do that, we miss, this whole thing is the testimony of Messiah. The whole, from start to finish. And when Jesus says, you search the scriptures, guess what he was talking about? The Hebrew scriptures. New Testament wasn't even written yet. Have you heard about the Passion Translation? Don't read it. First of all, the guy who wrote it, wrote it because the angel who who he saw when he was talking with God was named Passion. So he wrote the Bible after him. The guy has zero Greek training whatsoever. He's he's the only one writing it. Zero accountability. He's part of the New Apostolic uh, Reformation. And this Passion Bible, listen to me, has 50% more scripture than the Bible itself. If anyone adds to this, let it be added to him, the curses that are in this book, the book of Revelation tells us. That's some seriously thin ice and yet Christians are gobbling it up. That terrifies me for them that we're being led astray by false doctrine. And by the way, there's this passion version. It's only the New Testament. And the Psalms and the Proverbs. And that's one that, I remember when I, when I was a kid, I had a little New Testament Psalms and Proverbs. And I thought that was cool. No one told me, you're missing, you know, two-thirds of the entire thing. You're missing everything that Jesus said testified of him. What's that? The Old Testament, we like to call it. It's not the old, it's the older Testament. The Hebrew Scriptures testify of Jesus again and again and again. This book is about him. I know I'm a broken record on this, but we got to hear this. The scriptures. The Bible says, Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. It's the spirit of God that lights up this word. And the word lights up our path. Where's the path going? To the father through the son. The word is about Jesus. Or Peter says, 1 Peter 1:19, we have the prophetic word more sure to which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Wait, John the Baptist was a lamp. Yeah, lit up by the Holy Spirit. Were lamps. Yeah, lit up by the Holy Spirit. The word of God is a lamp lit up by the Holy Spirit. Peter says it's a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your heart. What day? The day of Christ Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Verse 41, I do not receive glory from men, Jesus says, and truer words were not spoken at that time. I don't receive glory from men. But I know you, that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. Why not? Because Jesus gets that love. He gets it from God. Jesus doesn't need glory from men or affirmation or honor. He deserves it. he doesn't need it because he gets it from the father. His father who said, this is my beloved son. Every time Jesus was having a bad day, and I'm sure he had bad days because he was the son of man, because he was in flesh. Every time Jesus was having a bad day, all he had to do was think, but dad calls me beloved. I'm the beloved son. Every time he mentions being the son of God, You gotta know that inside he's lighting up because all of his honor is coming from the Father. Jesus knows he has the love of God in himself. And he also knows those who he's speaking to do not. They don't have the love of God in themselves. Where do you get it? Where do you get your affirmation? Where do you get your love? Where do you get your honor? Do you have the love of God in yourself? Please hear me, I'm not asking do you love God? I'm saying, do you have the love of God in yourself? Do you know God's love for you? And if you're doubting it tonight, let me help. R- Romans 5, verse 5. The love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Or Romans 5, 8. God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Any questions? Jude 21. Take this as a prescription tonight. Keep yourselves in the love of God. When you're feeling guilty, when you're feeling shame, when you're bashing on yourself, stop it. Keep yourself in the love of God. It's not, how am I pleasing him today? How am I doing? Oh, I'm not doing so good. Yeah, but he loves you so much. And we're right back to that, that love that motivates life. Keep yourself in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. Verse 43, I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. Mark this, that is a veiled allusion prophetically to the Antichrist. Another Christ is gonna come and you're gonna receive him. I've come as I am. You're not receiving me, but you're gonna receive him when he comes. I read that, I think, man, that's just, that's really amazing that that's gonna happen. But John also later writes, 1 John 2, 18, children, it's the last hour, and just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know it's the last hour. Doesn't mean that Antichrist won't come, it just means that there is all kinds of deception that continues out there. And there are all kinds who are led by that same spirit, these Antichrist deceivers people who come saying i'm another christ i've got a new way god's given me a new revelation the passion translation that's something that he says god's given me a new revelation i'm going to borrow the words from john corson if it's new it isn't true god's given me a new thing he's given us his word one of the most dangerous lures of mankind is what Antichrist comes along and tries, he tries to bring, and that's glory. People exchange the truth for a lie, trading out the love of God for the glory of man, humanity. And verse 44, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? When we're more intent on getting our kudos from other human beings, then we are getting it from God. Do you, do you want his honor? See, I've told you before, I think one of the things that for me will be the most exciting thing I've ever heard in my life is to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. To hear my father say, well done. Oh. As a kid, I wanted that, I loved it. When my dad said he was proud of me, whoa. That was huge to hear my father, God say, Rick, good job. That's what we want to hear. But Jesus speaking to these leaders said, you're looking for glory from one another. And it's one of the most dangerous kinds of uh, lures of mankind. Glory from each other, human validation, human glory. It never lasts. I can tell you right now, we can walk out of here tonight and I can say, Susan, that is the, uh, a beautiful shirt you've got on. I love the baby blue. Nice color choice for tonight. <laughs> and you can walk out of there and go, oh, that kind of makes me feel good. Guarantee in half an hour, all you need is someone to cut you off on the way home and it'll be gone. All that glory, all that honor, whoop, out the window. John 12, 42 tells us that even many of the rulers believed in him, But because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing. For fear they would be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. There's the problem. Galatians 1.10, am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Jesus Christ. You know what carries you through the day, the week, the month, the year? When criticisms come and people attack and it's not self-defense that carries you through, it's the love of God. God loves me. Does it get any better than that? Verse 45, do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses. And we're still with the witness of the scriptures. The one who accuses you is Moses in whom you've set your hope for if you believed Moses you would believe me for he wrote about me but if you do not believe his writings that is the scriptures how will you believe my words Jesus is all over the writings of Moses we've seen him in Torah we've spent time in there watching, seeing and I invite you go through Torah again and look for Jesus this was the I think the biggest impact on my understanding in teaching the Bible that I've ever had, and it was when we started the bridge, and it was the realization that Jesus is on every page. And I remember early on going, okay, we're gonna look for him on every page. If that's true, (laughs) we're gonna find him on every page. So Genesis chapter three, verse 16, gives the first prophecy, the proto-evangelicum, you know, that the seed of woman, and the woman's going to have a seed. The women don't have seeds. This is a miraculous thing. Look it up, Genesis 3.16. How about Genesis 22 through 24? The whole Abraham-Isaac saga. And Isaac coming back and getting his bride. And, and I mean, it's just this amazing picture of the father and the son and the bride, the church. And it's all right there. In the writings of Moses, Exodus chapter 12, the Passover lamb. Well, Christ is our Passover. Leviticus one through five, every single one of the sacrifices are cameos of Jesus. Numbers 24, 17, when that skeevy seer Balaam says, "I I see him, but not now. I see a star will come forth from Jacob. He's talking about Jesus. They're in Torah, they're in the writings of Moses. Deuteronomy 18, talking about the prophet who would be Messiah. And it continues throughout the Hebrew scriptures and the challenge for us is just look for him. As we're studying through the Bible and when we leap back to the Hebrew scriptures, Lord willing and the saints don't rise, look for Jesus. Because he says, it's all about me. And if you believe what Moses says, then you're gonna believe in me as well. Let me finish with this. Whether the witness is John the Baptist or the prophets or the signs and miracles that Jesus performed or the father's testimony or the scriptures, all of these witnesses serve the same purpose and that is to bring us to Jesus who then brings us to the father. It's to show us him. That's what a witness does. That's what testimonies are about. It's testifying of Jesus and who he is. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, your words are pretty intense, powerful and overwhelming. And to hear you speak these truths, declare these realities about yourself, and then turn around and and, and give witnesses to the fact It's just awesome, and and, and I'm in awe before you. I honor you, Lord Jesus. We worship you and praise you tonight, Lord Jesus, for your remarkable words and for the way you have brought the witnesses to the stand and laid out the evidence and the truth before us. And Father, I pray that you will increase our faith tonight, our trust in Jesus, our love of Jesus more. And finally, Lord, I just want to ask this. By your spirit, keep us in the love of God. In Jesus' name.